Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. All right, Citizens Youth, how we doing? Good, good, like Noah said. Uh, my name's Justin. I hung out with some of you guys at Everything Youth Conference, so uh, thanks for having me back. It's good to see you. If you've got a Bible, you can turn over to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be tonight. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, um, do you have a friend, or maybe you are that friend, who you're always looking for a loophole? You know what I mean? Like that person who's always trying to like push the boundaries. When I was in college, uh, my friends and I used to eat at the dining hall a lot. And I had some friends that like to kind of push the boundaries. The thing about a dining hall is when you're eating there, you can eat as much food as you want. That's kind of how a dining hall works. But uh, when you leave, you're not really supposed to take food out with you. You know what I mean? Uh, But... The exception to that would be if you were running late to a class, you might grab an orange or a banana and a coffee and like run out on, you know, on your way to class or whatever. And that was fine. The cafeteria workers didn't seem to mind that much. And so I had a few friends who decided to see if they can test that boundary. Because after all, what's the difference in one banana and two bananas? What's the difference in one apple and a handful of apples? And before long, they had this whole operation where they would just smuggle fruit out of the cafeteria and back into their dorm rooms until they had this whole gigantic fruit stand in their quad that people could come in and out and just grab fruit on their way to class. And uh, they would say, hey, you know, it's... It's for a good cause because we'll still eat it. It's just the same as if we had eaten it while we were in there. People will eventually eat it. We're not doing anything wrong. And then like the RD found out and he's like the guy who's in charge of the hall and he was less than thrilled by their new fruit charity efforts. And so he shut it down. It was sad, but they couldn't really get in trouble, right? Because there was no rule against what they did. It was a, it was a loophole. And that just got me thinking about some other loopholes that people have taken advantage of over time. Like uh, in 2014, there was this folk band named Wolfpack. Uh, we have a picture. They, they released a silent album on Spotify. And by silent album, I mean, literally, it's an album that has no sound on it. The track listings are just silence for three or four minutes, and they have different titles, and you would listen to the album, and at the time, Spotify had this pay-per-listen feature, which is great if you are a big artist that has lots of fans, you can probably make you know, a good amount of money, but if you're a smaller, lesser-known artist, what are you going to do? Well, Wolfpack figured out the loophole. They released a silent album, and they asked their fans to listen to it nonstop, on repeat. Just leave it on the background of your computer, on your phone, 24-7. They made $20,000 off of no music. Genius. That's a loophole. That's a great loophole. Uh, Another one that I saw was David Phillips. Uh, back in 1999, he, uh, there was this promotional campaign. Uh, if you go to the next slide, there's this promotional campaign to eat healthier foods, and then you traded these in for airline miles, vouchers to be able to fly. And he did the math. I think the idea was like you kind of eat a variety of foods, and you send these in, you get points for flying. Well, he did the math and figured out that his best price 
was going to be spending that money on pudding cups. And that actually, they would lose a ton of money. So he actually invested in 12,000 pudding cups at 25 cents a piece. And he traded this in for 1.2 million airline miles. Just to give you that in perspective, that is 400 flights worth of airline miles because he bought pudding. That's a loophole, right? He found a loophole. And this one's my favorite. Is uh, In 2014, uh, New York City banned people from bringing their pets onto the subway, which I thought was just like a rule that we all knew. But apparently they needed to make a rule. You can no longer bring your pets on the subway, except the way that the rule was written is they said you couldn't bring your dog on the subway unless it was, quote, in a container. And so this led to some pretty creative uh, dog container systems like this one. And some people put them in backpacks. If you go to the next slide, you'll see that. There's a backpack. It's pretty cute, right? And then here's my personal favorite uh, container for a dog. I don't think this is what they had in mind. I mean, guys, come on. This is a great, this is a great loophole, right? Okay, why do we start here? I think what these stories highlight for us is a tendency in a lot of us, in all of us really, to want to bend the rules to work in our favor or change the standard into something that works for us. Uh, and maybe you're like, not me, I'm a rule follower. I always, you know, I, I play it straight. But I think there's times when all of us want to kind of bend or manipulate or find a loophole in our life circumstances to work out better in our favor. Uh, maybe you've been in an argument before with a friend or your sibling or your parents. That probably never happens to you, but, you know, it could presumably happen to someone. If you were ever in an argument with them and you ordinarily, you know, the way that you just responded is not cool. It's not okay. But... Did you hear the way that they talked to you? I mean, if they hadn't have said that, then I wouldn't have responded in the way that I did. You know what I mean? There's, there's a loophole that we leave in for ourselves. Or maybe you know at your school, God calls you to live a life of integrity. But there's this one class that honestly is just pretty dumb. And so it really doesn't matter. The teacher's terrible. And so who, what does it matter if I cheat in this class? If I, you know, like, uh, I'll just use less than credible means of getting through this class because it's a dumb class anyway. I wouldn't do that for, you know, a class I really cared about. Just for this one, we leave ourselves a loophole. And maybe sometimes it's just justifying a normal sinful tendency like gossip or lying or lust or bending the truth in a situation. And ordinarily that wouldn't be okay. But listen, in my situation, you would, you would understand if you were in my shoes. You know what I mean? There's these tendencies that we have to create loopholes. And tonight, I want us to think about one area that we tend to try and find a loophole. And that is with God calling us to love people that we find difficult to love. Tonight, we're looking at a famous story that Jesus taught uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've been around church at all, you, you may have heard this story before. Even people who aren't followers of Jesus have heard this story. Uh, it's one of the parables of Jesus. And if you're not familiar with what a parable is, a quick definition for a parable uh, is this. It's really it's a, a short story that Jesus would tell to draw attention to attention. In other words, there would be this conversation that people were having. It was a topic that was being discussed, a debate, and people had different feelings on it. And you kind of feel the tension in the room, you know, like when someone's going to get in an argument, you feel that tense feeling. Jesus would tell a story that would purposely call attention to that, that would illustrate it in a way that would draw people in. But then he wouldn't just tell the story. He would also tell it in a way that compelled a personal response. That's the second one. He, a parable compels a personal response. It 
causes us to do something with that story. And in the story we're going to look at today, a a teacher is going to stand up and ask Jesus a question. Jesus is going to respond with a story that's going to draw attention to the tension. And then he's going to compel this person and really compel us to a personal response. So if you've got a Bible, Luke 10, we're going to start in verse 25. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So right away, we're introduced to this character. He's called a lawyer. A lawyer, we think in our terms, it's someone who's an expert in American law. And they, if you, you know, got into a car accident and you had to report it, that lawyer would then step in and tell you what the law required of you to do and what the other person had to do. This lawyer that is talking to Jesus is not an expert in American law. He's an expert in the Jewish law and specifically in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the law of Moses. And his job was to read and interpret the law and think about how people should live in light of that. He knows Jesus is this religious teacher who showed up on the scene and he wants to ask Jesus a question. And we're told that his motivation isn't really to learn. He wants to test Jesus. He wants to get into an argument with him. He wants to draw out an answer from him so he can debate him. And so this teacher asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal Life. This is the kind of life that Jesus promised, that Jesus often talked about. A new kind of life that begins when you place your faith in Jesus that starts now and lasts in all eternity. And this teacher wants to ask Jesus, how do I get in on that? But he wants to test Jesus and see how he's going to answer. So Jesus, he sees this and he responds with a question back. Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You can almost hear the playful banter in Jesus' voice. Okay, expert in the law. All right, lawyer, interpret the law for me. How do you read it? This is what the lawyer says in verse 27. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What he's doing right here is he's summarizing all of the Old Testament law. He's actually quoting from two different places, one in Deuteronomy and one in Leviticus. And he pulls these two texts together to say, ultimately, what we're called to do, what what does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean to live in God's kingdom? It's to love God with all that you are and love others as yourself. And he does pretty well. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 28, he says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Yes, love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor like that. If you do this, you'll have eternal life. But that's a huge do. That's a huge task. And the teacher doesn't like this answer. This lawyer, he's wanted to get into a debate with Jesus. Maybe he's caught a little off guard by that answer. So he says, it says this in verse 29, but desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? What's he doing here? He's doing what many of us do. When we feel the weight of God's commands, we want to find a loophole. We want to shorten the reach. We want to make the standard easier to attain so that we can meet that standard. He feels the weight of this commandment, and and we often do too. I mean, we would say, hey, I'm a loving person. I love my friends. I care about my family. But how do you love the person that's not like you? 
How do you love the person that views life differently than you or has a different political opinion than you do or loves the, how do you love the person in your small group who just like always is kind of like annoying and they somehow they're always sharing their life problem and it always comes back to them. And, you know, we, we're loving people though. Well, I mean, except in this situation, we leave ourselves a loophole and that's what this guy is doing. And this is the setup for one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. This is how Jesus responds in a story that's going to compel a personal response. It says this, Jesus replied, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Jesus is painting this picture of, of a road to Jericho that would have been well known to his audience. In fact, there's a, a picture of it uh, that I brought. There's a picture of, uh, it says, notice the text says he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you're looking at this map, you're like, why is it down? Seems like that's up, right? It's going north. Uh, it's actually descending. It's not in uh, direction, it's in elevation. He's going down from Jerusalem, which is up in kind of a more mountainous region, down into uh, Jericho, which is the lowest place, uh, 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 the lowest point at sea level in uh, the country. And if you look at this next slide, there's a picture of the road that Jesus is talking about. It's, I've been to this road. It's, it's known uh, to be like a dangerous place to travel. Robbers could hang out in, you can see it's like rocky. And so uh, robbers and, and people would hang out out there and try to, you know, if you were traveling alone, you would be vulnerable. They jump out and attack you. And that's what happens to this guy. It'd be like if I told you a story and I said, hey, someone was hanging out downtown. It was late at night. They were in a sketchy part of town and they got jumped. You'd be like, well, yeah, that's how that works. That's kind of what they would hear when they think of the Jericho road. But here's what's surprising is who shows up next. Verse 31. Now, by chance... A priest was going down that road, one of the good guys. But the text says, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And we can imagine this priest is coming home from his duties in Jerusalem. A lot of priests lived in Jericho, and so Jesus is telling the story. He, he's leaving work in the temple where he's been helping people worship God, and he's on his way back. And he sees this guy, and rather than help him, he steps around him. Jesus says this in verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, what gives? There's, first, there's a priest. Now there's a Levite. And if you're wondering what a Levite is, a Levite's like a JV priest. All right, they're part of the same family, but they don't have the same responsibilities. They're helping out the priests in the temple. But the point is, both of these are like church people. Imagine if you were leaving tonight and you got in your car, your parents picked you up or you got in your car and, and it didn't start, you needed to jump and you saw Noah leaving and you're like, hey, Noah, that's my youth pastor. Can you help me out? And Noah said, sorry, guy, I'm off duty. Can't help you. I only do pastor stuff until 8 p.m. No, no more. Noah wouldn't do that. Uh, but that's what these guys in the story do. You'd be like, what, what in the world's happening? Why don't they stop? Why don't they stop to help this guy? I think there's at least a few reasons why they don't stop. And it's not all that different from reasons that you and I might make excuses or give ourselves the exception to. Uh, here's a few reasons that they might tend to avoid helping in a situation. The first one is it's inconvenient. Without a doubt, it would be a, a, a huge inconvenience for them to stop and help. And notably, because of one reason would be because of Jewish law. 
Uh, Jewish law was very clear of what constituted a, an unclean situation. And if you were to go and touch a dead body, which, remember, this guy got beat up. He's in a pool of his own blood. He's left for dead. You would have imagined that this guy is probably dead. And if you were to stop and help, you would become ceremonially unclean. You had to go through a ritual cleaning back in Jerusalem. He just got off from work in Jerusalem. Now I got to travel all the way back there. It would just it'd be a hassle. It'd be inconvenient. The second reason that we might avoid is because of cost. I mean, even if this guy was alive, which he's probably not, but if he was, and then I have to help him, it's going to cost time and money, and I got a family to get home to. I, I, can't, I can't deal with this right now. And the third reason is it's dangerous. It would be dangerous to stop and help this guy in a place where he just got jumped. There might be other robbers nearby. Those same guys that jumped him might do the same thing to me. In fact, he might be part of the trap. I go and help this dude, and then they come out and get me. But what if he's bait? It's just better if I don't stop, if I just keep going. And I think we're not that different. I'm not that different. What are the reasons that keep me from helping others? Well, one reason, I've made decisions out of convenience before. Serving others is often inconvenient. If I have to go out of my way to help somebody else, it's going to cost me something. If I started serving in a ministry at the church or leading and stepping up in my small group, it's going to limit my free time. If I, if I got involved in this thing that my parents want me to get involved in at my school, you know, I'm going to have to give up certain things to serve Ah, it's just going to cost too much. Or it might even be dangerous, going on a mission trip or serving in your city or hanging out with people who may not return the favor. Maybe it's not physically dangerous, but like emotionally, it would be, they might not like me. They might not be nice to me. I don't, I just, it'd just be easier if I don't. And this is where Jesus is going to throw the curveball to make his point. There's been a priest. There's been a Levite. And then it says this in verse 33, but a common Jew, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Finally, one of the good guys, someone who was brave enough to set an example where the leaders didn't, he would step up and step in and help his fellow Jew, and the message would have been clear to Jesus' audience. Even when the leaders don't set a good example, you be the one who does the right thing. Step up and help. Except that's not what the passage says, is, is it? What's your Bible say? It's but a Samaritan. That's not how the story's supposed to go. Jesus, what are you doing? A Samaritan. See, you have to understand how much Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Samaritans were considered not even like real people. Right? We treat them like animals because they have religiously compromised. They've intermixed their religion of the one true God with the other nations around them. So they're religiously compromised. They're, they're ritually unclean. They're racially inferior. They've intermarried with people that God told them not to intermarry with. And so the Jews viewed the Samaritans in this time as the worst of the worst. And in fact, Samaritans didn't really like Jews much either. So there was a lot of conflict. There was racial conflict back and forth. In fact, if we press pause on this story and you flip over in your Bible one page back to chapter 9, there's a story where Jesus is traveling with his disciples to Jerusalem and they try to go through a Samaritan village. And as they get there, the Samaritans that are there realize these are Jews that are trying to go to Jerusalem. You're not welcome here. They kick them out. And then we read this from two of Jesus' disciples. Luke chapter 9, verse 54 says this. When the disciples, James and John, saw it, they saw how the Samaritans treated them. They said, Lord, 
Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, first of all, I have no idea what this means, but it sounds bad. I don't want to find out. And second of all, this shows you how hated the Samaritans were by the Jews. They're ready to pray to ask God to light these guys on fire because of the tension that exists there back and forth. But it goes on. The text says that Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they go and go on to another village. What those disciples would soon learn is that Jesus didn't come to destroy his enemies. He came to die for them. And it seems like no coincidence that one chapter later, Jesus is telling this story with his disciples in earshot. This just happened. And in this story that Jesus is telling, a Samaritan is the hero. What's Jesus doing? What's Jesus doing? Let's keep reading. He says this, but a Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. See, just like the priest and the Levite, he sees the same thing, but his heart is moved towards this person and it compels him to action. I love how one pastor puts this. He, he says the, the good Samaritan, he takes notice, he takes pity, and he takes action. He takes notice, he takes pity, and he takes action. And that is something that every single person at Citizens Youth can do. When you see opportunities around you to serve God, you can take notice, you can take pity, and you can take action. And that's what the Samaritan does. He doesn't just feel bad feelings. Oh no, they're, they're in trouble. That's so sad. How many times do I hear someone who's going through a hard time, they're sharing something hard with me, and I say, oh, that's, ah, that's just too bad. I'm sad for them. But I don't actually do anything about it. I say, oh, I'll, I'll pray for you. And then I never actually pray for them. I just kind of use it to get out of the uncomfortable conversation that I'm in. A Samaritan, he doesn't just stop with feeling bad. His compassion motivates him to action. Look at verse 34. It tells us how his compassion would come to action. He says, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. It's not like the Samaritan would have had a first aid kit on his donkey or whatever. How do you think he bandaged his wounds? What he would have done is he would have come to this man and taken his own robes, his own garments, and torn them to be able to bandage his wounds. He's taking oil and wine. He's, he's cleaning his wounds. He puts, them on, puts him on his own animal. Maybe you have uh, some like little siblings or um, you've got some little kids in your life. Maybe you do babysitting or something. And you know like a little kid, sometimes they, they want to be held. They'll like hold up their arms to you and you, you pick them up and put them on your hip and carry them. And, and you know, if you've ever, you know, experienced this before, little kids, they don't stay little for very long. There comes a point in time when it's like, it's easy to pick them up. And then all of a sudden, one day you're like, oh, you're huge. This is like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. You ever try to pick up a grown man who's unconscious and put him on an animal? Can you imagine the struggle of picking this guy up, his blood getting all over the Samaritan, his own clothes that he's tearing to wrap his wounds and put him on this animal? And takes him to an inn. He takes care of him. The text says he brought him to an inn. He took care of him. Verse 35. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He's 
paying for him to stay there. It's at least a few days worth of wages for him to stay and heal and recuperate. It's the kind of radical love that the Samaritan shows to someone who honestly probably wouldn't do the same thing if the roles were reversed. If a Jew walked past a Samaritan laying on the ground, would he have had the same level of compassion that this Samaritan has for someone who likely would hate him? When we talk about showing loving action, when we talk about being the representatives of Jesus to the world around us, one way that we could define love from this passage is that love is your good at my cost. Love is your good at my cost. That's what the Samaritan does. If finding a loophole is saying, I'll benefit at your expense, I'll find the, the rule that I can kind of bend in my favor. I'll find the loophole where the rules don't really allow, you know, say anything about so that I don't have to make myself uncomfortable or so that I don't, it doesn't cost me something. I'll benefit at your expense. Love says the opposite. Love says you benefit at my expense. It's your good at my cost. And in this passage, there's an expert in the law, this lawyer. He stands up to test Jesus. He asks a question that honestly, he probably wishes he could take back right now. Jesus responds with a story, drawing attention to that tension and compelling a personal response. This is how he's going to end his conversation with this lawyer, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. I think what's interesting about this, notice it seems like he can't even bring himself to say the words, the Samaritan. He just says the one. Yeah, 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 the third one. Jesus tells him, you go and do likewise. The expert in the law is focused on who he has to love. Who is my neighbor? Jesus is focused on how he should love. And the big idea of this passage, if you're taking notes, the big idea of this passage is simply this. Those who know love, show love. Those of us who have experienced the love of God, we know what it means to be followers of Jesus and have God's love change our hearts. We show that love to others. And the expert in the law, check this, the expert in the law, when he gives his answer in the beginning, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's assuming he's doing that. And Jesus says, if you're having to ask the question, who's my neighbor, how should I love people, then you haven't really understood the first part. You haven't really understood love for God if you don't love people. That's the kind of love that Jesus showed us, isn't it? That like, like the man laying on the side of the road, we were the ones who were hopeless and lost. Ephesians said that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were the man laying on the side of the road in our own pile of blood. And, and more than that, the Bible tells us that we were actually enemies of God in our sin. That when I choose to live life on my own terms and in my own way without the blood of Jesus to cover me, I am God's enemy. When we said, God, I don't, I don't need you, I'll do it on my own. We were God's enemies, yet Jesus had compassion on us. Jesus loved us and died in our place on the cross. He didn't just feel compassionate feelings and feel sad for you. He took loving action at the cost of his own life. You're good at my cost. And as people who have experienced that love of Jesus, God calls us to show that love, display that love to those around us. Because loving God is inseparable 
from loving people. And if we don't love people well, it could be because I don't know God's love for me. Or it could be because I've forgotten. I'm not thinking about God's love for me. And so I wonder what this looks like in your life. I have a few questions here that'll just help us get our minds wrapped around. What is Jesus calling us to? And what would it look like for you as a middle schooler, as a high schooler to start to apply this and think about where is Jesus calling you to love others? Here's a few questions. Jesus says to go and do likewise. How do we do that? Here's some questions to get you thinking. Who's the person who's hard for you to love? Who's the person that when you're around them, you just feel your guard going up? Who's the family member that every time you're around them, it's just like grinding gears? Who's the person in, on your team or in your classroom that you can't stand? Who's the person who, that the Republican or the Democrat who you're just like, man, they're just an idiot. Why would they ever think that? Who's the person in the LGBTQ community that you're like, man, if I love them, I don't know what people will say. If I care for them, if I'm friends with them. Who's the person that's hard for you to love and how might God want you to show his love to them? Who's that person for you? Second question, uh, what practical needs do you see in people around you? Here's a question, do you even notice them? Or are we so busy living in our own lives that you know, we don't see the people that are around us and how we could step in and help? I mean, I love the idea of being generous until it actually costs me something, until I actually miss out on something that I want to do in order to help someone else. What are the practical needs that God has put you around that you could meet? Is it a, a friend that you can encourage? Is it a person who doesn't have any friends and you could step in and make yourself socially uncomfortable? They're not gonna, you're not going to get any reward out of that, but you're going to do what God would call you to do and love that person. What practical needs has God positioned you to meet? Number three, what area of ministry or serving others have you been resisting? That's a pretty good indication of in your heart where God is trying to push you towards. What's an area of, that's been on your heart? You've prayed about it. You've just been hesitating for some reason. Maybe it's because it's inconvenient or it's costly or it's dangerous. But that person that you need to be a friend to, that ministry you need to step into, that serving opportunity that's been on your heart and on your mind, you've just been saying, ah, not yet, not yet, not yet. Maybe you've been praying, God, would you send somebody to do something about and God's saying, yes, I'm sending you to do that thing about. I don't know what that looks like for you, but these are just some questions that have helped me wrap my mind around. What does this look like for me to love like the good Samaritan loves? And maybe you're hearing this message and you're thinking, man, I know for a fact I don't love this way. I mean, the good Samaritan loves his enemies more than most of us love our friends, if we're being honest. And what I want you to see is that our love for God is shown by our love for others. Our love for God is shown by our love for others. That's what we've been talking about. Those who know love show love, right? But our love for others is grown by recognizing God's love for us. If you want to love others better, you need to think deeply about God's love for you. Because the ultimate goal of this message, the ultimate goal of Jesus' command to this guy is not just to say, do more, be better, love someone that you don't love. Jesus isn't trying to give this religious expert another command to obey that he can just check off his box. He's trying to awaken him to a new reality of God's love for us in Christ. Remember earlier we talked about those uh, two other disciples of Jesus who they want to like call down fire on the Samaritan village. One of those guys, his name was John. 
And John followed Jesus for many years, and over time, his heart began to change as he got to know Jesus more. And, and later, he would describe himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. That became his new title, his new identity, his fundamental identity. How he wanted people to know him is, I'm the person that Jesus loved. Isn't that incredible? How would that change your life if you thought of yourself that way? But here's what John wrote many years later in 1 John chapter 4. I think it just ties in with what we've been talking about. 1 John 4 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, know, does not love does not know God, because God is love. What's he saying? He's saying those who know love show love. Love for God is shown by our love for others. If you don't show love, maybe it's because you don't know love. But again, our love for God is grown not by trying harder, but by seeing God's love for us. And that's what John is going to remind us of next, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, for everything you've ever done wrong, for every mistake you've ever made, for every regret that you have from your past. Jesus forgives. Jesus is the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice in our place. We are justified, rescued, adopted into God's family because of the love that God has shown us. He ends this way, verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because those who know love show love. Jesus didn't take the loophole out of loving others, and he doesn't leave that option for you and for me. Our love for, God, our love for others isn't, try, isn't grown by trying harder to love people we don't love. It's by focusing on God's love for you and what he's done for you and asking him to fill you with that love and help lead you to love others that way. Isn't that the kind of Christian's you want to be around? Isn't that the kind of people that you want to hang out with? Isn't that the kind of person you want to be? Like, just imagine with me for a second, if when people hear about Northwest Gospel Church, when they hear about citizens' youth, that they say, man, I don't, I don't believe everything those, that church believes, but I know some people that go to citizens' youth, and man, they love people well. What, wouldn't you love it if someone said, oh, yeah, 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 Northwest Gospel Church. I, I know somebody. My neighbor attends there, and they, they helped me a lot when I was in a time of need. They showed me love when I needed it. What if you had a person that came into your small group this year that didn't know the love of God, and through your witness to them, through your love for them, they came to become a follower of Jesus because of the love of God that impacted your life and then impacted theirs? I want to be part of that, and I don't want us to miss out on that either. I don't want you to miss out on that. So let me pray for us and ask God to create that kind of love in us. Father, we recognize that it's not through our ability and our trying harder and our wisdom that we can live this out, God. We need your help. You've called us to do something that Frankly, God, is just impossible for us. I don't love people I don't love, but you did. 
You loved me when I was far away from you, God. Would you help impress that into our hearts and our minds? I pray for these students that they would look around at the world and see your love for them and then your love through them, that you want to impact their neighbors, their, their classmates, their sports teams, their clubs, their families, God, for families here that there's a student whose parents don't follow you or siblings who don't follow you yet. Would you draw them to yourself because of the love that these students show to those around them? Would you root us more deeply in the hope of the gospel that you have changed our lives and now we want to impact the lives of others? Thanks for this time. Thanks for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.